Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. There's another element to this that I love to muse on because this is where my activism kicks in is I don't know that we need to have data and MRV solutions for all of these challenges because inherently when you take the MRV solution over the boots on the ground solution, you're not only removing a human, but you're removing a perspective and a potential economy from that. And that has all sorts of implications from you're not supporting local stakeholders intending to the landscapes that are their backyard. You're not putting capital into the pockets of local communities that ultimately are going to be tending this landscape with touch points that are going to be more frequent than you as the service provider or even perhaps the landowner. And additionally, this has philosophical implications because, you know, what if we actually start to disconnect from nature even more through these MRV solutions? These things just become numbers, right? When I see carbon projects and someone's like, yeah, don't worry, there's carbon accumulating down there in Belize. I have a satellite image to prove it. That's nice. And I, I'm really glad that the deal has been made and that the carbon is being sequestered and, and the nature protected as a reality. But there's a lot of case studies that we can point to that show that the communities don't actually benefit. And the carbon is maximized, but not some of the other ecosystem services or the biodiversity. And by having those boots on the ground measures, at least hybridizing, it allows us to have that really important empathy for what you know what needs to happen at the landscape level for all the local stakeholders to, to benefit as much as those coming in to, to do the good work. Matthew, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. To dive right into the deep end, would love to just open with, you know, what is the 60 to 90 seconds on mass reforestation? How would you describe that for folks listening in? Yeah, that's a fun one. I don't know if I'm as rehearsed as I should be, but let's give it a <laughs> let's give it a try. So since the beginning, and this is year six, seven, almost eight of the company's existence, we were formerly drone seed and now mass reforestation. Our mission has never changed. It's to scale reforestation and mitigate the worst effects of climate change. And the way we're doing this is by bringing to the table technological solutions to address that scaling challenge. But we recently, in the last few years, we've began to focus on modernizing and streamlining through a vertical integration exercise, the reforestation supply chain. And we're doing this by aligning it behind a product that isn't a conventional timber fiber product. It's an offset or basically a carbon future and that allows us to have the product to rally that entire supply chain behind, to modernize it, and to implement it from the community level back to the forest level or the community levels. Interestingly enough, this is a cool opportunity because we already had Jonathan Lovren of what was then Drone Seed on the podcast about a year ago. And so this is a cool opportunity to for me to kind of reflect on what I learned then and then what I've learned now and then make the comparison over time. But would love to get your perspective on kind of what motivated the external shift from being branded as drone seed to master forestation. Was some of that kind of born out of a desire to not be pigeonholed in this kind of view of the company as a company using drones to deploy seedlings? Because I know that there's a lot more work being done across the full supply chain. That's part of the exercise. I think we're less concerned about labels. You know, we build drone seed and we're fairly effective. So if I can reminisce a little bit. When we were building drone seed, the target was still the areas that we're targeting now. It was very much solving the problem of 
large impacted landscapes that are not being addressed with reforestation and that aren't seeing natural regeneration. So the problem statement remains the same, which is large areas of our Western lands are burning and large components of that are not regenerating naturally because of changes to the climate, because of the intensity of those fires, et cetera. So when we were building that technological platform, it really was for that specific purpose. And our entire product evolution was around how do we get to these areas? How do we stage the right genetic material for a diversity of species that we want to replant or replenish, reseed, to be using correct terminology? Mm. And then how do we develop the software and hardware systems to do that? So we did that left to right. And, you know, drone seed became so effective at this that we were even working with the FAA and, and all the other regulators to make sure that as a pioneering entity, we were the first to do heavy lifted aircraft, the first to do swarms. Um, and these things were the size of small Volkswagens when they were all you know, set <laughs> up. So we were pioneers in the sense. So our company name, that brand, Drone Seed, became used kind of like, you know, I'm going to Google this or, or I'm using a Kleenex, right? Yeah. Drone seeding. And the challenge that we encountered that really helped us transition to mass was more structural. It was actually when we developed that product market fit and started going out to do the projects and engage with these landowners. And the landowners might've been an agency. It might've been a large private landowner, might've been a small private landowner. It didn't matter. But in all cases, we were being told, oh, there's plenty of seed out there. We just need you to prove that the technology works. So when we actually brought the technology and started doing the projects, we quickly realized that no one actually had the seed that they claimed they had. And that's still the problem that we have today. And this is not just a drone seed problem. This is is actually a Western continental problem. How are we going to actually act on any of this ambitious reforestation work, trillions of trees, et cetera, if we don't have fundamentally the building block of that genetic diversity for the structural part of these habitats, right? The plants, the vegetation, the trees. So that a light bulb went off and, you know, we had the good fortune of myself and several others having deep history and network with seed economies, tree seed economies, native plant seed economies, seedling production and everything up and downstream from that. So, you know, it it became a lobbying effort where I I was walking in and out of Grant, our CEO's office saying, hey, man, I think we need to get into the seed business. Hey, I think we need to get in the nursery business. And him in the meantime, he was thinking about, well, how do I actually create a marketplace that can fund this scale of venture? And how do we think about this? And so some light bulbs were going off and we have some really talented team members that have done this at big you know, companies before, Amazon and Google and others. And we had people who had done logistics at other places before and they're like, this is possible. So we slowly built that plan and started to make those acquisitions of components to the supply chain. And then we aligned it with the carbon marketplace and we were off to the races effectively, allowing us to, again, build that supply chain around this new product and really shift how we position ourselves to make broad scale impacts. And the benefit to all this is regardless if we're successful in our specific business objectives, we're actually up-leveling the ability of the broader society and the revolving and parallel economy. So all the service providers in the space to have seedlings, the basic building blocks of reforestation and restoration. Excellent. So I think one thing that'd be good at the stage is for folks listening in, why don't we give them a pretty concrete example of what a project that you all would develop looks like in 2023. And we can kind of move through to the different phases because I know that the supply chain that you are building maps pretty directly to all the different phases that are necessary for successful project development. 
That's right. So how would you like me to structure this? Would it be interesting to hear about a specific project or a hypothetical? A specific project, if possible, I think would be great. Yeah. Great. So I'll actually highlight a really important project that we're doing in the Yellowstone Corridor up in Montana. There was a significant fire in Montana, east of the divide. It, it took out several private landowners for us. And when I say took out, meaning the fire was significant in its intensity and scale, and it damaged these properties to the point where the likelihood of regeneration of the native components of that forest all the vegetation that was low. And as a result, the mm. wildlife, the people, the community that depend on these landscapes were in a predicament looking at a fairly bleak future in terms of managing that landscape the way they had historically. Understood. So one landowner in particular who was working with a lower local forester in Montana was connected with Mass. Mass began to scope the project and actually decided that the appropriate path forward was to partner with that local forester, with that local expertise, to begin to implement a reforestation plan. Mm -hmm. And because of the size of this project, it was fairly important that we could fund the work in order to basically pay for the cost of operations on the landscape. You know, we're talking about several thousand acres. Got it. Yeah. Additionally, in Montana, like many other interior Western states, the timber economies, the extraction economies have long declined or been in decline or effectively no longer exist. And as a result, that ecosystem of service providers to do forestry work wasn't incentivized to persist in these areas. So in order to have you know, good high touch point forestry work done, we would be either importing it or supplementing it and building it locally. So Mass effectively provided an opportunity for us to fund the work through carbon offsets yep. and carbon removal credits effectively. And that set in motion our supply chain. And this included sourcing seed, both from banks, but also by actively immediately getting on that landscape and collecting seed from trees that were producing it. We activated our nurseries by contracting seedling production for this area. So set that in motion. In the meantime, we began working with that local forester to work with our foresters to write a land prescription. So how we're going to address the landscape with mechanical or chemical treatments that reduce the risk of competing vegetation. And then we start to put into motion all the actors that need to be involved here. So the service providers. So these are crews that are coming to do the labor that physically needs to happen on a site. And this can vary from our own internal teams to contractors that leverage any diversity of practitioners that can be HGB visa workers or local experts. Similarly, we start working on things that are more civil engineering in nature, like making sure roads are in a good place, making sure that the removal of biomass in the form of standing dead trees is mitigated, et cetera, et cetera. So all of this is actually midstream right now. We've conducted one full site preparation treatment, which is preparing the ground for planting. And then we've planted just about 200,000 pine trees back on the landscape. And we have several hundred wow. thousand seedlings to go. So in the next basically one to two years, operations will continue where we're planting our seedlings out on this site. We're preparing the land and we're writing and implementing the prescriptions that will ultimately regenerate that native forest. So why is this big picture important? Well, the project is with a local landowner that relies on that landscape and will rely on it intergenerationally. So his kids, his grandkids, 
intend to maintain this landscape and derive it as their you know core revenue stream. So they make money by allowing various recreational activities from uh, motorsports and hiking to to hunting. But they're also very passionate about that native system being a corridor for that wildlife. So balancing the two has always been their prerogative, and this will allow them to continue to do that. Yeah. This is also fundamentally good news. If this works out well, you know, the, the day that landowner finally starts to see that cash come in from the offset sales, you know, will be a really good signal to all the neighboring landowners that are looking for desperately for opportunities on how to finance similar work. And so this early adopter is really a pioneer as much as we are in this process. And if we start to see the dominoes fall and more and more people adopting this approach that is non-timber, non-fiber aligned, right. then we start to see an impact on the landscape that, that potentially is a flywheel of sustainability and managing landscapes for multi-century, multi-decadal leases that have you know wildlife objectives, effectively non-extraction economy objectives, which is a really good thing. Yeah, I was going to say, as you were kind of speaking to the way that they currently see it as a source of revenue, I was like, yeah, it's going to be massively exciting for them once they start to see that stream of carbon removal credit revenue. And it's such an interesting example, given that you noted that it's already kind of fallen out of use for traditional timber production, because, you know, inherent to that and also inherent to what you described around the fact that it wouldn't necessarily have regenerated post-wildfire on its own, that really starts to get into kind of some of the conversation around additionality that can definitely be tricky in carbon markets at times. But yeah, these is a clear example of the way that you laid it out of a reforestation effort that wouldn't have happened because there isn't necessarily a traditional economic incentive to regrow a forest there, given that it's already out of use for timber production and given the environmental situation where the regeneration wouldn't have happened on its own. That's right. Additionality is paramount. We absolutely must be operating in areas that, you know, we're going to be able to demonstrate that. And unfortunately, there are increasing opportunities for this situation in forests because of that. Basically, the climate is changing and the intensity of the fires is significant and the scale is so large that the seed sources aren't are present on those sites anymore. So the likelihood of you know, state shift is the ecological term is much higher. And there's now mm-hmm. a lot of well-published data that is suggesting that it's, you know, up to 40% of, of Western landscapes that have been impacted or are at risk moving into the next century. And that leads me to another question, which is, you know, I'm sure you all are keenly focused on regrowing as resilient a forest as possible. And I imagine that one big component of that effort is understanding what was there previously and kind of what was the biodiversity makeup of this ecosystem in the past, given that those are often in and of themselves resilient ecosystems. But I'd be curious what else kind of goes into that evaluation of, you know, what's the right composition of forest, if you will, it's probably not the perfect term for it, but what's, yeah, what's the right forest and ecosystem to restore in this landscape, especially as the climate changes? So this is a deeply philosophical question (laughs) as much as it is a practical one. So I'll attempt to give you a non-academic answer and see if there's a way for us to chase that into, you know, what we're doing to apply it. Definitely. Generally speaking, when we talk about restoration, restoration means that we should have a reference point to your question, right? So what is that reference point? And depending on where you are in the world, this can be a very challenging thing. 10,000 years ago, Over most of the northern U.S. and Canada, there was two miles of ice. 
if we're doing restoration work, is it to pre-glacial conditions, post-glacial conditions? And what makes us believe that that is the optimal stable state, given the speed at which the climate and the biophysical conditions are changing, right? What is risk reduction? So I try to think about it a little more reductively. So it's like, when we do restoration, we need two things. We need structure and function. And we hope that the two intersect so that we can have a resilient and sustained ecosystem moving forward. And that raises a complexity that I don't think we should go down the rabbit hole, but I have to acknowledge, which <laughs> is, is this a historic ecosystem, a reference point that we are pulling from that landscape and restoring or migrating perhaps a few miles north or, or up in elevation? Or is this a novel assemblage of species, meaning this is a novel system with now invasive vegetation and trees and species coming from perhaps Eurasia or other, you know, climate analogs because they're already present on the landscape and would we be foolish not to incorporate them into our thinking? And then there's a third piece, which is like, what makes us think that we're going to make the correct decision? Because we have not funded <laughs> this science that well. And there's so much still to learn. And, you know, Aldo Leopold right. talked about intelligent tinkering. You know, you take apart this engine without knowing what all the parts do. What makes you think you're going to put it together and it's going to run right? It's an ego that I don't want to bring into the work. So to try to find put a fine point on it, our work is trying to master the execution piece. And the execution piece is bring all of the native species that we can to the table for the structural component of restoration and try to maintain all of the legacy components of the ecosystem that have not been impacted by extraction industries, chemical treatment, fire, in such a way that those can provide us some of the functional components. And that includes below ground diversity, the seed bank, and that in com combination with that structural change that we can impact should create a fairly diverse and robust mosaic for that stable state to happen in concert between anthropogenic influence or our artificial regeneration and natural resilience helping to meet that equilibrium. Yeah, I love the way that you kind of started it with the philosophical question and then increasingly tied it back to your work. And I think this speaks well to what we already mentioned around. It's so important to get some of these early adopter projects because that's where so much of the learning is actually going to come from. And it should compound over time. You all are going to get exponentially better and have a lot more insight into what a successful project and a resilient ecosystem that's restored looks like once you go from project five to 50 to, to 500. Exactly. And even though it can feel overwhelming to deal with all these variables, even just the fact that we're having this conversation and that the way that folks are starting to see a forest is shifting from, you know, the one variable economic model of what's the timber value to maybe still asking the question of what the timber value is, but also adding in a few more variables at minimum of what's the carbon value what does the biodiversity makeup of this ecosystem look like? It's a good reminder that we don't always have to solve for a million variables to make an improvement going from like single variable economic models to, to multivariable ones. I really like that. That's an important point. And I think that's part of the resilience argument, right? Is, is a diverse set of economic considerations in our restoration work. And it also, you know, this is the next big topic that we could do a podcast on in and of itself. But with respect to the the MRV component. That's kind of where my next questions are leading. And maybe we can just start decomposing it a little bit with, you know, what is the hardware that you all are working with or anticipate working with that's going to help you be really rigorous about measuring and reporting and verifying on some of these variables that we've now introduced into the discussion? 
Well, there's a number of different components of our supply chain. So there's hardware and software uh, implemented kind of across the board. And I guess to focus in on just seedlings and the future, I think one of our biggest interests there is reducing the cost and burden of boots on the ground while increasing the fidelity of the analysis that we're providing not only to ourselves for product iterative work, meaning improving Right. seedling production and seedling supply chains and the prescriptive work, but also to the regulatory groups that are coming in to verify that carbon is on that site and accumulating. Right. The landowner who wants to know a uh, how many seedlings did you put out and how many survived and where. So there's a lot to unpack here, but at a high level, right now, the majority of that work is, is still done by ground truthing. So we send out teams with a variety of, of tools to actually implement either statistically irrelevant or complete surveys on these sites. And the hardware is actually in the mobilization. It's how do we efficiently get them out to a site, keep them safe, allow them to move quickly across this landscape, collect and process that data, and then send it back to our tech operation team, right? Interesting. And a lot of folks, maybe some of the listeners are like, we have drones, you guys have drones, or you have satellites, why wouldn't you do <laughs> yeah, that? And it, it used to be called drone seed. <laughs> and the answer is yes, all of those things are relevant. But let me give you a fairly reductive example of why we're not there yet. You know, have you ever clicked around in the internet and they ask you to like identify the fire hydrant or whatever it is, that supervised classification that we're doing, big data. Well, similarly in environmental survey work, when you're dealing with the chaos that is the wild environment, unlike an agricultural field, there is a lot of noise. And it's really hard, whether you have a super high resolution drone or a super high resolution, low, low orbit satellite, right. it's super hard for us to actually distinguish between the focus subjects and the noise. Specifically, if we're dealing with regenerating seedlings that come out of the nursery at four, six, eight inches, maybe 12 inches tall, and really the resolution could be there, but there's vegetation that is the same chromatic color. There's this, it has the same resolution and frequencies, you know, there's chaos. So we're not quite there yet. And as we build our capacity to do that, we're testing the tools, the drone systems, satellite images. We have teams that are actually working on the models to actually reduce that noise. And there are many people working around the world on this because this has a value to plantation forestry and plantation work as much as it does our work, ours will just be a lot harder because it's going to be this diversity feature, right? Yeah. So when we go from what does your row of pine look like in like a plantation somewhere that is doing timber fiber <laughs> to like, hey, look at our prescription, which is clumps and randomly interspersed. And we're using seven different species and they have needles and broad leaves and all these things, you know, it's going to create a complexity that we currently just can't flip a switch on or send a drone out for. So work in progress. We've started, others have as well. And we're hoping there's going to be a conversion within this decade, especially with AI bringing a lot of uh, power to the table and, right. and being able to assist with what is otherwise supervised classification that's training these data sets. Yeah, I'm glad that you provided, I wouldn't necessarily even say pushback, but that kind of realistic framing around where we're at with respect to using the full stack of kind of data analysis and data generation tools, because it is really cool what some companies are doing to, for instance, launch hyperspectral satellites into space. And those could certainly have biomass quantification applications down the road and drones with LIDAR equipped or thermal sensing have applications across the full climate tech stack. 
But yeah, to me, it always, when I come back to this question, it strikes me as it's really the harmonization of everything from that satellite imagery to the on the ground data, like being able to build models that use all of that data, that feels like where significant opportunity is really going to crop up. I agree. And there's another element to this that I love to muse on because this is where my activism kicks in is I don't know that we need to have data and MRV solutions for all of these challenges because inherently when you take the MRV solution over the boots on the ground solution, you're not only removing a human, but you're removing a perspective and a potential economy from that. Mm. And that has all sorts of implications from you're not supporting local stakeholders intending to the landscapes that are their backyard. You're not putting capital into the pockets of local communities that ultimately are going to be tending this landscape with touch points that are going to be more frequent than you as the service provider or even perhaps the landowner. Right. And additionally, this has philosophical implications because, you know, what if we actually start to disconnect from nature even more through these MRV solutions? These things just become numbers, right? When I see carbon projects and someone's like, yeah, don't worry, there's carbon accumulating down there in Belize. I have a satellite image to prove it. That's nice. Right. And I, I'm really glad that the deal has been made and that the carbon is being sequestered and, and the nature protected as a reality. But there's a lot of case studies that we can point to that show that the communities don't actually benefit and the carbon is maximized, but not some of the other ecosystem services or the biodiversity. And by having those boots on the ground measures, at least hybridizing, it allows us to have that really important empathy for what, mm. you know, what needs to happen at the landscape level for all the local stakeholders to, to benefit as much as those coming in to, to do the good work. I love that perspective. There's always risk when things become more of an abstraction, perhaps, than, or at any level of the abstraction. If we move from purely valuing forests for their timber value to purely valuing them for their carbon value, there's a lot that would be lost in that if, as you say, it doesn't also consider what's the potential community economic benefit and what are the potential flywheels between preserving that community economic benefit and resiliency, for sure behooves us not to continue to be reductive, but just in a different way. Totally. And like, if we're going to do this correctly in any of these markets, whatever the credit is, whatever the offset is, water, biodiversity, carbon, we need to have a centuries plural outlook. And the American uh, economic machine and engines are among the best. And unfortunately, they're very myopic with timelines to return on investment. So we need a paradigm mm. shift in, in how we view landscape management, at least uh, in Western markets. And in, we need to figure out a way to create value so we can have that long-term perspective. And having local stakeholders right. and intergenerational ties between management outcomes, revenue outcomes, and the local community, I think is actually the sustainability piece. So like, yeah, I constantly grapple with this, right? Because we need that economic engine of capitalism. But to deal yeah. with the magnitude, but we also need this persistence because the ebbs and flows of economies, the boom and bust cycle of federal funding cycles, the thing that needs to be steady and true is that people on the landscape maintain that trajectory, the land lease agreements, et cetera. And how does that conversation look when you start thinking about the, the buyer side of the equation, folks that would be interested in potentially purchasing the carbon removal credits? Because I mean, that conversation in specific might be a bit broad, to broach with any of them, but I'm curious what types of questions they ask. And I'm also curious kind of for your read on, <laughs> you know, the state of the market for these types of credits, because, you know, there's innumerable news articles about 
reforestation projects in the developing world that potentially for whatever reason, like don't make good on their initial commitments. And from the outside looking in, it can seem like kind of a fraught area of development, the nature-based carbon market, but I'd be curious for your perspective on it. Yeah. I mean, as a longtime practitioner and somebody who was integrated with communities, not only regionally, but globally that we're trying to do this work, I am super encouraged by the fact that we have this emerging marketplace at all. I think the fact that 20 years ago, I would have never imagined where we would have had ecosystem services paying for reforestation, seed collection, community level organization and, and development of restoration. Like it's mind blowing. And I'm so grateful that the right economic forces and individuals have led and gotten us to this place. But I think the, you know, I'm not the carbon offset specialist and, and I don't deal directly in this marketplace. We leave that, a lot of that to our expert sure. colleagues, but I will say you need leadership on the buyer side. And I think without I, uh, pointing to any individual entity, there are large corporate entities that have an opportunity to participate in voluntary purchase of voluntary removals and their risk aversion is what they need to contend with. And I think it's important for them to take the leap and lead because they often impact economies themselves. And if they take that lead, we'll create a flywheel of interest. And where we come into play here is by making sure that the quality of our work is highly accountable right. and high quality. And I think by having that leadership on the corporate side, on the buyer side, where people are increasingly buying the highest quality credit, and we'll start to see the separation in the marketplace of all of us who are forming solutions. And that in and of itself will build trust and, and mature the marketplace. You know, we're in the early mining or speculation days, right? And we need to mature this to a proper industry is how I view it. And I think all the things that come next, we're going to just take some leadership and some risk on everyone's part. For sure. It's definitely still catalytic stage. But yeah, I'm glad that there are folks like yourself who are doing this work on the nature-based solutions side, because we are starting to see that for tech solutions like direct air capture, where perhaps the MRV quotient is a little bit more clean or advanced, like you're starting to see government support, you know, in the US, for instance, for those types of solutions. We've had a lot of announcements over the past few weeks with respect to DAC hubs and a DOE government procurement program for those types of credits. So it's really important that all of that continues and that we don't also lose sight of what is kind of the more scalable side of the market ostensibly, which is, you know, how do we do nature-based solutions, carbon removal work in an equally rigorous way or in a way that at least satisfies demands from corporate buyers and ideally also the government to garner that level of support for the work that you all are doing too. Yeah, I, I agree. Really good points. And I mean, I guess a thing to add there is one of the reasons we're so focused on the Western North American continent is because, you know, the regulatory environment is robust. So as we see a maturation in this space, we're going to see regulatory bodies start to fall in line to make sure that the accountability pieces is really well uh, developed. And, you know, not only does that play into the quality separation, but I think that's the prove it point that we really need if we're going to expand this to global markets, because you can go to any developing forested nation, especially in tropical regions where you see really robust carbon reserves possible in a much shorter time period. But the ability to have accountability, 
and a robust regulatory environment around that work is, is much lower at this time. So I think leadership starts at the corporate level, yeah. is backed by the government and ultimately moves to a global position. Even though this is happening globally, I think the quality separation really needs to start in Western markets. And our government should be looking at this for as a leadership opportunity as well, you know, like right. like the senators uh, and others who see this as a developing economic opportunity and not enough capital behind it should really be thinking about this in the long game. So I think bridging that gap is is going to be an important information strategy that us and others are going to have to maybe even co-op around. There's a great kind of cue for advocacy on the policy front. And also, as you said, the information question is pretty influential. It doesn't always seem like it, but the extent to which we talk about and publicize and have conversations about this type of stuff, it does have an impact. That's what we're trying to achieve today. I'm also curious, I've kind of been on my biodiversity beat. And as we unpacked, there's plenty of stuff to think about and develop on the carbon side of things alone. But how do you see kind of the evolution of the extent to which MAST integrates qualification around various biodiversity metrics into its work? And is there a future, near-term future, medium-term future, where that also becomes kind of part of the product that is sold? What's interesting about this evolution to MAST is our current focus is post-wildfire restoration, reforestation. But that doesn't actually prohibit us, and it doesn't prohibit us currently from serving a much broader marketplace of need. So as an example, we provide seed globally to global consumership of anyone producing conifer seed or needing to broker any seed for that matter for reforestation or revegetation. Similarly, we provide seedlings for a diversity of consumers, whether it's timber and fiber producers, restoration outfits, tribes, and now the carbon marketplace. And so as we get to these inflection points where we've got the flywheel of projects going in reforestation, we may find ourselves, in fact, we are going to find ourselves focusing on other areas that either have a direct synergy with our access and that supply chain, or will run parallel to it. So with biodiversity, for example, there's an easy win here in that we have very thoughtful forestry leadership on our team. And when we work with local service providers and we bring this capital to the table and we start to design our prescriptive work, we have in mind a softer touch on the landscape that has biodiverse forests and non-timber and fiber objectives built in inherently. So as these crediting systems evolve that benefit other ecosystem services, you know, we will have a fairly practiced hand and maybe even a, a landscape to leverage that to for the landowner's benefit. As an example, if we're given 5,000 acres and only 2,000 burned, we're really only focusing on that 2,000 acres. But there's other work that needs to happen on the remaining 3,000 acres in the Mm. future. So perhaps we're reinforcing biological diversity or watershed or any other type of objective in our prescriptive work. And so in the future, these things can be an additional benefit to that land base. You know, in a more hypothetical, you know, I could see us, in fact, we're exploring other solutions packaged together as sort of a blended credit offering. So forestry is just one of the ways we mitigate the worst effects of climate change because it's a large part of the landscape. You know, we have these naturally evolved carbon sequestering organisms, but there are a number of other startups that don't have access to a supply chain or land or, you know, programmatic approaches the way we do that are coming up. And we may find ourselves in either partnership or thinking about acquisitions with them in in the future. And, 
you know, it's all about building momentum and it's an all hands on deck approach. Who knows? Maybe we partner with some of these carbon capture entities that are using nuclear submarine scrubbing systems to, to pull carbon out of the air and, and create a, a dual benefit there. Because I, I think it's really about creating that economic incentive and then blending opportunities. Yeah, I love that. That's a great vision of, you know, you could have some of the really, quote unquote, high tech carbon removal technologies cited alongside the work that you all are doing, potentially. There's probably some synergies, or at least it would be a, it'd be a great thing to see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've blown past the Paris Accord thresholds in every one of our trajectories. And I'm sitting here in Bend, Oregon right now, and they, it's 278 QI from here up until central British Columbia, right? Yeah. It's just, we're living in smoke. So, you know, my wife and I were talking about it. Are we just going to lose six weeks of every summer for the rest of our lives if we're, you know, if we're not seeing impact or change or, or you know, climate trends reversed? And I don't know that I'm the optimist that things will reverse them. I think we, at this point, should be working to stabilize them. And that's going to be an all-hands-on-deck approach. So I don't say this out of, you know, economic interest. I say this genuinely out of human interest for the well-being yeah. of where I live, you know? Yeah, it definitely feels like, given some of the extreme weather we're seeing this year and have in recent years, it feels like the public consciousness shift that folks have long wanted to see happening is definitely happening slowly. And there is a nice confluence of that alongside there is real U.S. government support for a lot of climate solutions that weren't necessarily supported as intensely previously. And there's a lot of private sector interest in it. So confluence of positive trends, obviously dealing with a massive complex challenge, but it's been good to think through live what the grander role of reforestation in all of that can be. And it's not just carbon, that's for sure. Yeah, that's right. And we think about the Western U.S., dry forests are a major component of, uh, of our landscapes. And dry forests typically are protecting the watersheds that you know are, are the water source for the majority of our robust agricultural systems, whether it's California, Arizona, or otherwise. And it also is the water for all of our cities. So if we're myopic and think about these as one or the other forest system or one or the other resource, I think we miss the big picture, which is, you know, even urban areas are going to be directly impacted by our, our inability to act to restore and maintain, conserve healthy dry forest systems. And to your point earlier around what some of the other products or offerings might be eventually, I'll be keenly interested to stay in touch around yes. once there is work that's starting to happen around providing an explicit service that says, you know, we're doing this work with an eye for carbon and for, as you mentioned, biodiversity or for maintaining the watershed. It'll be very interesting to track kind of the capital flows of how that stuff gets financed, whether it's credits, whether it's driven by regulation that forces landowners to think about it. Yeah, I don't necessarily have trenchant insight into what it's going to look like, but certainly one of the things I'm watching most closely. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could speak more candidly about, you know, some of our innovations and musings and learnings and evolutions in that space. But I think if you were to check back with us in about six months, you'll be very pleased to find um, we've been making good traction. <laughs> so, yeah. Sounds good. I'll set myself a calendar reminder. And that leads me into one of the questions that I always like to ask, kind of zooming out. I feel like we've already hit on a lot of it, but to state it plainly, I'd be keen to hear from you. When you think about measuring success for MAST, on like a three to five year timeline, what are some of those key KPIs that you'd love to see the company hit? Yeah. Oh man, there's so many good things, but I'll try <laughs> to distill it. So I think at the high level, it's execution right now. We've positioned ourselves to really expand our funnel 
to bring in landowners of all varieties and sizes. And this includes agency, tribal, private landowners. And we're vetting projects and our initial plate of projects should be our next one to three year focus. And I think executing them well means really exceptional forestry work, really exceptional engagement of local service providers and demonstrating that flywheel of capital to support this work and execute it. In parallel, I have obviously a very selfish interest in making sure that the legacy also involves modernizing the reforestation supply chain. I've been working in this space my entire career now, and I finally see the type of revolution that can be sustained. It isn't just linked to a federal or some other boom cycle of grant capital. Now we're actually seeing genuine interest and grassroots development. And there's a connectivity between, you know, capital, institutional capital and the supply mm-hmm. chain, not just with mass, but with other small, medium, large size entities. And that to me is extremely encouraging. And my personal goal is to make sure that it doesn't just go into speculative infrastructure development like we saw in Ag and Hort Tech, and then now you see all right. these abandoned greenhouses. I actually want to invest in the people. So the people mm. are what comprises this. And the expertise is the thing that is really hard to rebuild. Like right now, there's an entire effort to to talk about trillions of trees and global reforestation and all these things. But there are a handful right. of people that actually understand the dynamics of seed of seedling production. Like we're having a hard time staffing other external nurseries at the private level. And I brought my entire network into the fold to try (laughs) to get this going. And there's still not enough time in the day, right? So we need universities. We need that capital supporting local institutions. We need apprenticeships happening in in the supply chain, whether it's seed collection, planting, site preparation, whatever it is. And then we need government support to unlock things like similar to agriculture, H2B visa workers, housing in remote areas after the burn to actually be able to support this impact. So those are the two areas I think in the next three years that I'm personally very, very excited about. It's just that very much the execution piece and then being able to turn around and showcase the progress so that we see continued and sustained interest, measurable progress. I should be able to do that. I love the perspective on people too, and at the risk of using a word that kind of feels like an abstraction, like human capital. We talk so much about financial capital, yeah, but that's such a big part of the equation too. It's like we can get excited about the carbon market being a trillion dollar market in the future and having a constellation of satellites to do spectral imagery of biomass across the whole world. But as you pointed out earlier in this conversation, you're still going to need individuals with an intimate understanding of and appreciation of that land going out with a hand caliper and measuring trees. Or in a different discipline, you're still going to need a ton more electricians to go deploy heat pumps in the US and Europe and stuff like that. So that's it. Yeah. We can't abstract away the people from the equation either. Yeah. And I think that's how you, again, just double underlining the point. That's how you create the sustainability. Because otherwise, again, disconnected, it becomes ephemeral, if you'll allow me to use that word. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And to close on that perspective, I'd love to, you know, offer the opportunity for folks that are interested in working for or partnering with or just keeping tabs on what you all are up to. Where are the right places for those folks to look and get in touch? Masteryforest.com, our careers page. This is something you're passionate about, your mission aligned. We'd love to hear from you. If there is a job that fits your interest now, there might be in the future, or you should just reach out. Another way to get involved is really thinking about the supply chain dynamically. Do you live in the backyard of forests? 
great, let's set you up to actually be scouting for seed and participating in this future economy in a way that is actually measurable and tangible. And if you're in an urban environment, guess what? There are a lot of solutions that need to be developed and you can do that as a remote worker, software engineer, an engineer, and so forth. This, these are greenfield opportunities. We're taking a 50-year-old industry, modernizing it alongside the climate tech ambition. So it's all hands on deck, and I think there's no shortage of ways to engage. And if you're just stoked about what we do, we'd love to talk to you. So, yeah. Awesome. Beautiful. Well, it's been a pleasure, Matthew. Thanks for participating in the virtual event recently and now coming on a podcast and look forward to that six-month check-in for some of those big things that you all have to announce. Awesome, Nick. Big fan of the show. Keep doing the good work, getting the messages out there. And thanks very much for providing the platform. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.